21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast. In today's episode, I'm very pleased to have a, a very special person who's very uh, extremely inspiring with, with uh, what they have done over the past, uh, I guess it would be decade and a half, you know, 15, 16 years, but they've done some amazing things. Uh, my guest name is Alistair Humphreys. Uh, I'm going to get Alistair to introduce himself uh, in a second, but I just wanted to give you a, a little snippet glimpse into the journey that he has gone on. And we'll, we'll delve into this journey as, as the podcast goes on. But essentially, in a nutshell, Alistair has cycled around the world, uh, which started in 2001. It was a four-year journey, um, cycling around the world, 46,000 miles, 60 countries, um, which led to him running the Marathon de Sables, in, uh, which is a uh, one of the most grueling ultra marathons in the world. Uh, he ran that in 2006. Um, he's done a lot of writing in between um, his his uh, kind of the journeys that he's gone on. Um, so that was 2006. That led to him, um, and I, I might get the order wrong, Alistair, but rowing across the Atlantic, 3,000 miles, which led to touring Iceland on foot, so walking across Iceland on foot in 2011, uh, which led to walking across Greenland uh, in 2012. Um, and there's also uh, a journey you went on called uh, Into the Empty Quarter, which I'm going to get you to explain during the show, but that was a, a journey through Oman on foot across the desert. Uh, in 2012. Um, This has led him to uh, another project that he's currently working on in which uh, he's been recognized by the National Geographic as being the adventure of the year for his work with micro adventures. So Alistair, I'd like you to say a few words about yourself uh, to the audience and just give people a a glimpse into who you are and what you've done. Well, thank you. That was a very kind introduction. Um, yeah, I'm Alistair Humphreys. I'm a British adventurer and author. Um, I do quite a lot of speaking and increasingly trying to become a filmmaker as well. Filming's become my current passion. Um, yeah, you did a pretty good potted history of most of my trips. Um, I dabbled with Greenland rather than went the whole way across, but minor details. Yeah. And yeah, it's nice to be talking to you. I met you when I was cycling around the world, uh, I gate crashed your wife's birthday party in Hiroshima. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that's, <laughs> that's I, I remember so clearly getting a phone call um, from, so from somebody at the school saying that they, they had this guy that was riding his bike across the world, cycling across the world, and that he was rolling into Hiroshima. And at the time, you were stopping at international schools and, and sharing your journey with students. 
and the students, I, I know our students at Hiroshima were completely blown away by your journey and, and the images that you had and the talk that you had given in, in 2004. Um, so yes, I remember that you were, you were done the talk and you, and I came up to you and I said, well, what are you doing now? And you said, well, I've got to cycle about a hundred kilometers to the next town and I'll just, you know, go throw up a tent someplace where it might be. I said, no, no, don't, there'll be none of that. You're coming over to my house. It's my wife's surprise birthday party. A lot of my listeners know my wife, Neela. Um, so we spent the night together. I think, uh, it was a, a wonderful night that I think the, we had our own little micro adventure, which was playing golf at three o'clock in the morning in my backyard. Uh, <laughs> but I saw you off the next day, uh, on your bike, how little you had packed and then waved goodbye and then just kept up with your journey, uh, after that. So, uh, I think we can start there as a, as a good reference point, but why don't you just kind of, you know, I know you've, you've told the story a lot, but um, why don't you just go into some of the wonderful things that you learned during that, that journey? Cycling around the world is the, the biggest trip that I've ever done, and I'm pretty sure is the biggest trip I will ever do. I can't imagine myself wanting to disappear off for four years on my own anymore. That was quite a, quite a, um, brutal initiation into the world but but it was it was a, a very powerful experience it wasn't always the happiest of experience I and mean, I was as witnessed by your anecdote then I spent a lot of time briefly meeting people having brief powerful lovely interactions and then waving goodbye and cycling off down the road with no friends again until you met the next place so it's a really fascinating and the, the randomness of it all the meant that you had no idea who you would meet next so rich people poor people all sorts of different careers and races and religions so it's a complete immersion into the world and quite a strong immersion into myself as well I, I, I wanted to do the trip because I wanted a physical challenge I wanted to see the world and I wanted to see if I could be tough and do something difficult yeah. physically um, after about six months, I realized that anyone can cycle a very long way. If you just sit on your bike, you get very, very fit, and then you can then do it, and that's quite easy. And what I'd underestimated was the mental side of it and the, the cultural side of it, and that was the hard stuff, but that was also the most rewarding part of it. Yeah, I, I you did a TED, TEDx talk in Hull, is that correct, in 2013? Yes. Uh, that was a great talk, and I'll put that in the show notes, but... In that talk, you describe this um, this moment. First of all, just just to let the audience know that you did this round the world trip on under seven thousand pounds, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's about seven thousand pounds, roughly ten thousand dollars, which for four years meant quite a lot of um, sleeping like a tramp and yeah. eating ramen noodles and banana sandwiches. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> But you describe this this moment, and, and I'll never forget seeing the picture of you. I, I saw it um, when you were in Hiroshima. You had showed us your slideshow. So I remembered the picture clearly. But in your TED Talk, the picture comes up, and it's you in South Africa, and you're at the very tip of South Africa, and you're laying there, looking out at the ocean. You have a bottle of champagne, and you describe that beautiful moment uh, as, as a wonderful moment where... All of these thoughts, first of all, you, you, you were filled with confidence because you realized that you were capable of way more than you initially thought. But then that led into you kind of reflecting on waving goodbye to your parents, leaving them on your bike, and then going on this journey where you had never slept in a tent alone, and then suddenly going on this journey. 
and then being at the tip of South Africa. And when you set off thinking that or worrying that the world was such a, not in a negative way, but such a bad place, but really, in fact, realizing that the world is a really good place filled with good people. So it must have been a really reflective moment. Can you take us back to that moment? Um, I When I set off, I was, well, sorry, when I was planning to cycle around the world, that's the fun part of adventure. You get a big map and you put a lot of pins in it and you tell everyone you're going to go and cycle around the world and everyone says, oh, you're amazing. And I go, yeah, I know. And it's all quite fun. <laughs> And exciting, and then the reality comes at day one: commitment, saying goodbye to everyone, giving up one life, choosing another, another that's in many ways more difficult. And I found that very frightening and overwhelming. It was that I'd never really done anything very big in my life before, and certainly not anything unconventional. So I had no no prior experience to base anything on. So I was pretty convinced I was going to give up pretty soon. And therefore, when I made it to the end of Africa after about a year or so of cycling, that was a pretty um, big boost to my self-confidence, thinking, wow, I haven't given up. I've made it from England all the way to Africa. If I can do this, then surely I can do more stuff. It fills, fills you with a lot of confidence. And as you said, I'd had the, the experience of being so positive. I'd worried a lot about Africa and the dangers of it, and I'd been just met with kindness and hospitality virtually everywhere. So... In many ways, was, by the time I got to the end of Africa, it was a very positive experience. But then, my brain being a bit weird, I then thought to myself, if I've cycled the length of Africa, I know, therefore, I could probably cycle the length of any continent. If I know I could do it, what's the point in actually doing it? Maybe I should go and try something different. So I had quite a lot of doubts before setting off to my next continent, which was South America. But that, that was your original plan to go to South America, yeah? Yeah, from from Cape Town, I crossed over on a... My original plan was to fly across the Atlantic, but I thought it'd be more exciting if I could hitch a lift on a boat. So I hitched a lift on a sailing yacht and sailed across the Atlantic. It wasn't a big boat either, was it? Uh, it was a yacht. It was quite a... Uh, it was a 58-foot yacht. Okay. So it was a pretty decent-sized yacht, but when you're in the middle of an ocean, it feels very small. Oh, yeah, Definitely. So just for the listeners, so you, you started your journey, you went through England, you crossed to France, then you crossed Europe, through the Middle East, into Africa, and then down to the tip of South Africa, and then a, across the Atlantic by boat to South America. And then you made your way all the way up through South America to the Yukon, and this is an interesting story, and, and you know, I, I love the work of Tony Robbins, you know, Tony Robbins... I say in, in, the, in the, my podcast, whenever I mention his work, he sometimes gets a bad rap for being that infomercial rah, rah, rah guy. But the work he's doing with, um, you know, with people and getting them to understand that the, the difference between empowering actions and disempowering actions is remarkable. So he changes people's mindsets by getting them to flip their thinking and to thinking in an empowering way. So as he defines it, it's all about, it's not about the resources but people's resourcefulness. So tell the listeners what happened in the Yukon. I wish they could see a picture to, to <laughs> kind of do justice, but just explain that experience. Well, by, by the time I got to the Yukon, I'd been cycling for um, three years. I'd cycled every inch of the road that was possible to do so and and then I came across a forest fire and an enormous one it was a vast forest fire 
one of those huge Canadian ones that burns for months on end through the Yukon with only one small road through the middle of nowhere. And there was, that road was going to be closed for months. There was no way I could carry on. And I think, so part of me thought, oh, good, I've got a legitimate excuse here to cheat, to cheat a bit and to yeah. jump on a plane, fly over the fires, save myself a few weeks of hard work on the bike. But I didn't, by then I'd gone so far, I didn't really want to do that. So I had to, I had to think about it. And I realized that the, the journey wasn't really about cycling. It was. It wasn't. That really wasn't what it was about. What it was about was the adventure. It was about living adventurously, not taking the easy option, trying to take a pure and simple approach to adventure. That was much more important than being on a bicycle. And I suppose it taught me that any big project you take on, um, nothing's going to go perfectly to plan. And the key things to remember: the the core, non-negotiable stuff, the the real heart and soul of it. And then to just chill out a bit and relax on the details. So I decided then to borrow a canoe, put the bike in the canoe and canoe down the River Yukon for 500 miles until I was past the fires and could get back on the bike. So I missed out on some cycling and I did some paddling instead. And it was brilliant. It's one of the best aspects of the journey. And I actually think it adds value to the whole experience of cycling around the world rather than detracting from it. Absolutely. And again, that's resourcefulness and, and just uh, having this open, flexible state of mind and, and a, a mindset, a growth mindset that allows you to just continue to plow on in your own way. And you didn't expect that and you did it. And I think that's, that speaks volumes for just, you know, that, that side of you that just wanted to continue the journey. But so you got past Yukon and then you made your way into Siberia. And this is another interesting thing here. Okay. Because Siberia, I love how you say in the TED Talk that most people want to avoid the harsh winters, but not Alistair Humphreys, right? If you're going to do it, you're going you're gonna to do it right. So, so you timed your landing in Siberia perfectly because it was a minus 30 degrees or something like that when you arrived. And so you essentially cycled across Siberia in the winter. So that was probably your most physically demanding part of the trip was it yeah it was the most physically demanding it was the most um it was exhausting i actually i had a friend join me for that section so the two of us which actually added huge amounts of stress to it because at that point i'd been cycling for three years and he was fresh out of being a high school teacher so <laughs> i was a uh, slightly fitter than him and slightly more accustomed to the uh, life on the road so that brought its own issues yeah. uh, we were frantically racing time for our visas so we were absolutely exhausted um, and it was we also were very worried about failing and dying and it was just a very very stressful experience the only thing that got got through it really was just the comedy being able to laugh at yourself and just yeah. laughing at the ridiculousness of what we were doing and then also the kindness of the local people we met the people the people i met in russia i think were right well it's hard to rank the kindness of the world but yeah. the uh, people we met in in siberia were some of the kindest people in the world um and i it's funny because that, that was such an awful three months it was absolutely miserable and now i look back on it and i think that was brilliant and yeah. i'm so glad that i did it it's the, the hard things become the good memories in the long run yeah and 
going back to Africa, when you describe people, you know, really having these these doubts and uncertainties about traveling around the world and then making it through Africa and reflecting on all these wonderful people and, and the experience itself. Um, also, uh, on the flip side of that, you, you did meet a lot of resistance at times. And, and I thought about this and I thought about how to ask you this question, but um, it's about uh, the people that you meet that say, oh, no, you can't go there, or that's too hard, or it's too hot, or it's too long. And I think sometimes, and this is not just with your adventure, but life in general, that people pass on their fears to us. You know, so I look at those situations when you come across those resistant people that, that doubt what you're doing as projecting their fears on you. But can you just talk about the greatest resistance that you met during your journey? I think you're entirely right in what you said just then, um, and I think when when you're when you're looking to do something extraordinary, and extraordinary just means something that's not ordinary, and therefore by definition, most people that you talk to won't have done it. You have to be really careful because people tend to say stuff can't be done when what they really mean is, oh, I've never considered how that might be a possibility and might actually be possible and and that's a much, takes a lot more mental bandwidth to do rather than just saying no so you come up against a lot of that I think in anything that's doing yeah. something a little bit different um, the biggest resistance for me was internal one I beat myself up a lot I was very doubting of myself I thought I was biting off more than I could chew I spent huge amounts of time cycling along um, daydreaming about how whatever obstacle I was worried about at the time, how that would definitely be my undoing and I would definitely fail and definitely die and it would definitely be terrible. And then I'd get there and it was usually fine. And I'd go, oh, gosh. And then I'd never learn from that and I'd cycle off and I'd be worrying and worrying and worrying and then you get there and, oh, it's fine. So the biggest resistance came from myself, I think. And I suppose once I'd actually left the gravitational pull of homes, friends, family, normality, convention of home. After that, then I was just a free spirit out in the world and no one really had any authority or sway over me. I was just meeting people briefly and if they said I couldn't do something, it didn't really have much emotional power on me because they were essentially just strangers. So I think it's the, the people closest to you that often make things the hardest, um, even if they're trying to do it in a, a well-meaning way. So I think once I'd left home, then that side of things got much simpler. And the idea that of emotional resilience... There is physical resilience, yes, but there's also that element of emotional resilience as well, which I think you're describing that you became stronger and stronger in regards to your emotional resilience. You describe your journey at the beginning as, uh, with your TED Talk as uh, that you were not ideally suited to a life of adventure, that you didn't have the necessary skills uh, to, or the, um, I guess, the skills to climb mountains or to, to do serious expeditions. Um, you know, but this idea um, that to me that, that comes again is resilience. So do you think people are born with resilience or it's something that you, you, you train, uh, you essentially train yourself to become more resilient based on the hardship that you face? So you describe it as, as being, you know, you never thought you could achieve these things, but you did. So what's your take on resilience in regards to your journey? I think it's probably 
like most things in that you're born with a certain amount of it. Some people are born with more than others, but the majority of it comes through exercising it and training it and practicing it, just like learning an instrument or doing push-ups. It's just saying, this is something that's important to me. I'm going to put in the hours and work at it. And I certainly wasn't, or actually, no, I am not particularly emotionally resilient by nature, but I've trained myself. And I suppose that bike trip was my big training ground of four years of thinking, I'm going to keep sucking it up and keep doing this. And once you've done something difficult, that then makes the next thing vastly easier. The first time is the really difficult time. And so all the other expeditions I've done since the bike trip have actually been pretty easy in many ways because I've I've known that I can be resilient. And once you know you can do something, it gives you much more confidence. Yeah. Um, and this might be a good time to transition into to the marathon because I just think that that's fascinating because that's a different beast within itself. So the Marathon de Sables is um, a seven-day, again, I described it as being, what uh, it's described as being one of the most grueling foot races in the world. It's across Morocco, is it? Yes, yes, in um, the Sahara in Morocco, Marathon de Sables, Sables means sand, so the Marathon of the Sand, and the organizers bill it as the toughest foot race in the world. Whether it is or not, I don't know, but it felt pretty tough. And you have to carry everything you need, your sleeping bag, yes. all of your food. You get allocated water rations through the day, which for the scrawny little brown Moroccans and French people was ample, but for a big gangly white yeah. Englishman was definitely starvation rations of water. So water management was a real issue. And I loved it because in contrast to the bike trip, this was an event where I was amongst 800 people who were all suffering and chasing their demons and and helping each other doing it. And there's a, it's an extraordinary mixed atmosphere of camaraderie, of being out there sharing it with people, and then solitude. But once the day always begins, like all races, with a big rush, and then soon everyone just gets into single file and it's going their own speed, just locked in their own head. You overtake someone, someone overtakes you. So it's a solitary desert experience surrounded by 800 people i found it really fascinating what really really enjoyed it what happened um with your uh you broke your foot that's that's another thing you broke your foot on the fifth day and you still managed to to finish it so can you describe that yeah um i i was looking forward to this race because it was only a week and compared to four years a week didn't seem too bad so I was determined to just go at it, hell for leather, just blast myself. And I wanted to be as near to dead on arrival as I could. If I did that, I'd feel I'd had a good time. So on the next to last day, I stood awkwardly on a rock and I uh, cracked my foot. Um, and so the rest of the trip was quite a painful hobble. But so many other people were in similar states. People's feet just get shredded with the sand and the heat, shredded with blisters. You, the... It's disgusting, the state of people's feet. So there are all sorts of people hobbling and in various degrees of agony. So I was not really any more or less than any of those. So, And that's a really interesting thing, the shared experience. If you're on your own, you might give up. But if there are other people in a similar situation, then you, you keep going. And that the combined thing makes you stronger. How did you train for that? Or did, did you, like, yeah, what, describe I your... trained. I trained. Um, essentially, you run between 15 and 25 miles each day on the race and then one day is 50 miles so it's more similar-ish to marathon 
normal marathon training really yeah. with the exception that you have to carry your gear and the next day you have to get up and do it again so I, I train fairly similarly to a marathon really uh, gradually building up to doing it carrying a pack and then uh, doing it wearing lots and lots of clothes so I'd be running around London wearing so many clothes just <laughs> to try and simulate being very very hot which is a hard thing to simulate in Britain. People driving by looking at you probably a little strangely, eh? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially especially in the last week when you need to test all your gear, so you're running wearing your desert hat, even though it's pouring with rain, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, the one thing I wanted to ask you, too, and, and I assume that with every journey comes bittersweet feelings um, when you finish, but can you describe kind of the, the mixed feelings that you experience at the end of each of these journeys? I've, I've come to realize that I really don't like the end of journeys. You, you look forward to them, of course. You look forward because you'll get the accomplishment, you'll get the ending of the pain, you'll get a shower, clean clothes, and some nice food, which you are incredibly grateful for. And then you get to come home and see all your friends and family. And all those things are very nice. But they, I find that that satisfaction drops very quickly afterwards. And it was something that I hadn't really anticipated on the bike trip. Um, although I did my best to make that journey not be about the end. I knew that doing a four-year project purely for the end goal was stupid. So I tried to just enjoy the process. But I've, I really hate finishing trips now. And I come home and the anticlimax is quite huge. And I've read, I've read that since about a lot of athletes. You know, they win an Olympic gold medal, wake up the next morning, think they're going to be suddenly happy and life will be good. And they realize... I'm just the same as I was yesterday. So yeah. I don't think they're as instantly transformative as I might have imagined. Yeah. Have you seen Eddie the Eagle yet, the movie? No, I'd like oh, to. Oh, what a fantastic it. movie. Yeah, I watched, I watched it with my, my sons. They, they loved it. And uh, I just think about his journey is just remarkable. What an, inspir- do, what an inspiration, you know? Do, do they portray him as a hero or as a clown? They, this, as, as a bit of a clown... Um, but they, that's okay. No problem. They, they really respect, you know, they, they, they share his story in a very respectful way, but yeah, a little bit of a clown and, and kind of the, the lead up all the things that happen, you know, to him, uh, leading into the Olympics. And then he really plays it up, you know, in the Olympics, but um, I think it's a really respectful, they've done a really good job. And he himself even said that he was in tears watching the movie. Okay. So it really struck a chord with him. But I totally remember that. And, and there's a journey, man. I mean, it's just amazing what he accomplished in such a short time. Yeah, yeah so um, I, we were talking pre-show. I had you um, listen to an audio clip, right? So just to give people some background... Um, those of you that listen to my podcast know that I use a lot of TED Radio Hour uh, audio clips uh, for my guests to listen to, and I always try to pick a, a clip that I think will resonate with the, with the guest. Um, so the TED Radio Hour has given me permission, the host of the show, Guy Raz, has given me permission to use these clips, so I really recommend the TED Radio Hour podcast to anybody listening. But uh, this clip in particular is a clip from uh, Dame Ellen MacArthur, um, I think she's from the UK. Yes. She is, yes. Yeah, amazing, inspirational person. Uh, she's a sailor, but she essentially set the, 
the world record for the quickest solo journey around the earth um, by sailboat. So the clip you're going to listen to is from, from Ellen. And as you listen to it, I just want you to think about all of your journeys, Greenland, Iceland, India, um, you know, the Atlantic, which we'll get into after, but um, all of your journeys and, and what resonates the most with you with this clip. So I'm going to start the clip now and just have a think about that and let us know your thoughts afterwards, okay? Because, you know, all my life, that's all I wanted to do. I, I can't say sometimes I wasn't, you know, in fear for my life or, you know, on the brink of sanity because you've not slept for days in a row. I mean, it is brutal on your body physically and actually probably more important mentally. But I chose that. I wanted to be out there. And I loved the fact that when you're on a boat, you're connected to everything around you. You're connected to the boat. You're connected to the, the you know, the temperature of water, the temperature of the air, the wind speed, the wind strength. You're just connected. It's hard to explain, but you kind of enter this different world. But you enter a different mode when you head out there. Your boat is your entire world. And what you take with you when you leave is all you have. That's food, fuel, clothes, even toilet roll and toothpaste. That's what we do. And when we leave, we manage it down to the last drop of diesel and the last packet of food. No experience in my life could have given me a better understanding of the definition of the word finite. What we have out there is all we have. There is no more. And never in life had I ever translated that definition of finite that I'd felt on board to anything outside of sailing until I stepped off the boat at the finish line, having broken that record. Because so what, what an amazing person. Um, so what are your, your initial thoughts after hearing that audio clip? Well, Ellen McCarthy's an incredible woman. She is very slight, very petite woman. And she does some seriously hardcore stuff, pull, pulling big sails up, big boats. And, yes, yeah, she's very, very impressive. Um, I think what struck me with that was was her notion of choice, that she said this is all she's wanted to do. But I can imagine a lot of people might say, all I've wanted to do is sail around the world. But not many people actually do it. And I think for a lot of us who are in fortunate positions in life to live in the free world and have access to money and education, then we have so many choices that it's really up to us to take. So I admire her for choosing to make what she wanted happen. Um, and that was interesting also that she reflected on the, the mental side of the challenges being far greater than the, than the physical. That's certainly something that I found very true with my trips. But I don't think I have the guts to do what she's done. But you've done something similar. So this is a nice time to transition into. um, And I I never knew this. You know, I've kept up with your journey. And I just I missed this little snippet of your life where you sailed 3000 miles across the or no, sorry, you rode 3000 miles across the Atlantic. And I, I love the way you describe that in your TED talk as as getting in and setting off. And then once you were an hour out, you know, you couldn't turn back. So I assume the tides just wouldn't allow you to get back to, to the port. Uh, so you only had one choice to, to keep rowing until you made it. So, so give people a, a little snippet glimpse into that journey and, and what you learned. Four of us rowed across the Atlantic together in a, a rowing boat that was eight meters long. And you row in pairs, two of you at a time for two hours and then you rest for two hours, then you row for two hours, rest for two hours. So it's two hours on, two hours off, 
and that continues 24 hours a day, seven days a week until you get across the ocean. So it's a pretty brutal um, process of 12 hours exercise a day and never getting more than an hour and a half sleep at a time. So it's a pretty brutal experience and you throw in a few storms to terrify you and some sunburn and some blistered buttocks, then it's quite a tough task. But the, the notion, what you explained, the, the idea that of total commitment to this was quite an interesting feeling to be pretty much anything else I've done in life. If I really, really hated, I could, if I really hated it, could have just got out my credit card, bought a ticket home and given up and come home. But being in the middle of an ocean, being completely committed where nothing can help you at all was a, was a new feeling for me. And it was a quite overwhelmingly terrifying one in the early days, but I came to terms with it and it then becomes quite a liberating feeling in a strange way. Just the acceptance of this is where I am. Nothing can change it. There's no point moaning, no point complaining. I might as well just pull a bit harder on the oars and yeah. every time we pull a little bit harder, we'll get there a few seconds earlier. So, And, and you described it, described it as being like failure just wasn't an option. Yes, it was. It, because... Um, assuming you don't die, which isn't a good option, uh, then there's nothing to do but just keep on rowing. And actually, if you just sat there, the currents would eventually get you to land across the ocean. So it wasn't, I wasn't really, a lot of things I do, failure lurks over me and the fear of failure and particularly the fear of how people will respond if I fail. That hangs over me more than it should do. But on that trip, it didn't because I knew we would get there. What hung over me on that trip was just the sheer miserableness of it and that I really wanted to get to Barbados and have a cold beer. So you started uh, starting point, finish point. Tell us. We, we went from the Canary Isles just off Spain and uh, well, part of Spain just off the uh, coast of Africa and we rode to Barbados in the Caribbean, which is a pretty nice place to end an expedition. Absolutely. What, what did you learn about... Um... I'm sure it wasn't all shits and giggles when you were you were on the boat. Like, did I? I don't want to um, uh, imply that th- it was difficult to maintain positive relationships with the, the people on the boat. But did you learn anything about the people that you were you sailing with, you were rowing with? We we didn't know each other. Well, I, I didn't know the guys at all really before we began. I, I essentially joined a project a project that had been in the planning for two years and one guy had to drop out so I was a last minute replacement so I essentially set off with three strangers which is a definite recipe for disaster (laughs) and arguments and hatred Um, we got on very well and I think the key the two things we did were we offered to help each other a lot and I think that's a pretty obvious thing that you would do but much more difficult and I think particularly difficult for, for men in a quite a macho physical environment was the acceptance of help and acknowledging times when we felt weak or acknowledging that someone else was better than us at something and just accepting that um, and embracing that we were all just trying to help each other and that that was that really helped things i've probably never laughed more in my life than i did on that trip which is quite a lot of crying and quite a lot of laughing probably very very good medicine rowing very good medicine for you know Going through a journey like that, laughter helps everything, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Laughter, loud music, um, and looking forward to the next sunrise. Yeah. Um, now, we haven't told uh, the people, are you still um, connected with uh, Hope for Homes for Children? 
I'm a patron of Hope and Homes Children, and that's the, the charity that I started supporting before I um, did my bike trip. So I, d- I did 300 talks in international schools around the world for, for Hope and Homes on my trip, and I've, I've since become a, a patron of, for them. Yeah, and so that, that organization, again, can you just get, give a uh, kind of uh, summary of what it is they try to do, do or accomplish? They, they tr- are trying to close down every orphanage in the world, which is quite a big statement, um, a, big, a big mission. Um, the vast majority of children who are in orphanages are not orphans. The, va- the vast majority are there because their family can't care for them whether through, because they don't have the money or through disabilities. And Hope and Homes is trying to reconnect children with a, put them into a loving family home. Um, and I, I began supporting them because the adventures I do are inherently pointless and quite selfish. And it just seems sensible that if I'm going to do something like this, then you might as well make some useful good come from it as well. So I've chosen them to uh, nail my colours to their mast and support yeah. them with my expeditions. Yeah, I think that was a good message to bring to international schools because most of the kids in international schools are privileged. So for them to hear messages like that, um, it's very important to keep them in touch with kind of the realities of life and things like this that that happen, you know. So um, I'd really like to delve into, so in 2012, you were awarded the National Geographic Adventure of the Year, which is quite a amazing well, I was, honor. I was one of about 10. Okay. Quite an amazing honor, right? Um, it was, yes, it was quite a surprise. Yeah, and that's for your work with micro adventures. Um, so I love the the way you describe micro adventures. So I'll just give people a little bit of background into. I'll have you actually give the background into what a micro adventure is. But your first micro adventure after doing all of these, you know, journeys and, and projects, um, you decided to kind of return to your roots. And to um, tour, keep it local, and you took the M25, which is an expressway or freeway around London. So you walked around the M25, which is how many miles? 120. 120 miles, and I think you did it in eight days or something? or what? Yeah, about a week, I think, yes. Okay. So just talk about kind of the, the idea behind micro-adventures. Okay, sure. So I... I um... I have been doing these big adventures for a few years and and I started to realize that people were perceiving me as an adventurer, whereas I feel myself to be a very normal person who's just chosen to do these things. And I think there's a lot of people who would like to have more adventure in their life, but they don't for very good reasons, usually a lack of time, a lack of money, real life, all that sort of stuff. And so I wanted to try to start sh- show what I believe that you don't need to go all the way around the world to have an adventure and it's, it's more about making the most of the opportunities you do have rather than lamenting the opportunities you don't have. So if you if you can't spare four years to go cycle around the world, you can either moan about that or you can go for a bike ride this weekend. So that was the essence of it. And I chose walking around the M25. It's an iconic road in Britain that everyone hates because it's just boring, yeah. full of traffic commuters is awful and I wanted to show that if you can have an adventure 
and there you can have an adventure anywhere. You've just got to find wilderness on your doorstep, really. Stop looking for excuses and go look for some wilderness. And it was brilliant in so many ways. It paralleled cycling around the world. Um, it was a physical challenge. I saw new, interesting places. I met good, kind people. Um, it was brilliant. It was a bit ridiculous. It was quite a stupid thing to do, but it was very fun and very interesting. And and it's the whole micro-adventure thing has really resonated with people because it's it's achievable. L- listening to a story of rowing the Atlantic might sound quite fun, but nearly everyone is not going to go and do that. Whereas if I encourage people to finish work on a nice summer evening and go head out of town and go sleep on a hill for a night, that might be achievable. And I think the benefits of it are pretty big. Absolutely. And and I think I, I like, so I'm going to direct people over to your website so that they can look at the, your different journeys. But you did a little summary breakdown, like a little mini blog each day about the big things that happened that day during your M25 journey. And I read through that and it's very cool. Like every place you went, you know, it's, it, it, you capture the essence of that, that journey so well in, in those few little lines that you have on your blog. But, uh, I've got a teacher here at the school. His name's Paul Johnson. He's really inspired by your work and he shares your work with his uh, grade four class. My son is in his class. Um, and he wanted me to ask you, um, kind of that idea of, of getting in touch with nature and then returning, how powerful that is. Because a lot of uh, times uh, nowadays kids are suffering from what's called uh, nature deficit disorder. But if you, you know, and I'm sure you bring your micro-adventure message to schools, but what do you want to tell tell teachers uh, about micro-adventures and what's, what, what potential exists for creating these micro-adventures for their students? adventure stuff is about being more childlike anyway not childish but childlike and for example an adult might say something like oh when I was a kid we used to go climb hills and climb trees and swim in rivers and that was brilliant it was really good I used to enjoy that when I was a kid the thing is we still enjoy it now as adults but we don't do it because we think when we're adults we should do just boring sensible stuff instead of instead of climbing trees so Kids love this sort of stuff. Kids can easily do it. Kids can do way more than we give them credit for in the outdoors. And I think really the problem isn't the kids. It's us adults being a bit boring and a bit wimpish. Um, I, I went um, last summer with a, a primary school, an elementary school, with a bunch of kids. And we just ran wild, slightly feral for a, <laughs> an afternoon, playing in the river, making little rafts out of sticks, uh, trying to to try and build a raft that can hold a potato and float down a river and then had cooked sausages on a fire and slept underneath the stars and I, I did so much for them for their physically Absolutely. for their um, their relationships with each other and their relationships with the teacher seeing adults in a non-classroom environment uh, it gives some of them a chance to have a little bit of peace some of them a chance to just go crazy and shout a lot Absolutely. Um, and I think there's something for everyone in that. And you don't need to do anything very ambitious. An afternoon outside somewhere green, a small fire with some sausages and the night under the stars is something I think you'll remember for many years to come. Yeah, I think the idea of kindergarten doesn't have to go far beyond. They don't even have to go beyond the walls of the school. They can have a little micro adventure within the school. So I think that's such an important message. I know you just got a few minutes left. So um, I'm going to ask you... Um, to define your your real sources of, of, of inspiration. So if you had to identify, 
It can be books, it can be people, whatever it is, but a couple um, go-to sources of inspiration that have really moved you in, in the direction that you've gone. I think the, the initial inspiration for me was very much writing and books and reading books of travel and expeditions. Um, a couple of examples would be from the, the travel end of the spectrum, a book called As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning by Laurie Lee, which is my favourite travel book and inspired me to try and write creatively and hopefully beautifully about adventure. And then for just sheer bloody-minded hardcore expedition stuff, there's a great book called The, the Worst Journey in the World, which is a, a an account of Captain Scott's South Pole expedition which is a crazy journey and beautifully written. And just reading countless books like that was what got me itchy feet and got me the courage to set out and get out the front door. And that was the hardest part of all, just beginning it all. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, Alistair, I want to uh, really thank you for taking the time. I know you, you're so busy, and I think you're you're working on a documentary now, are you? Or are you, you did some work in Italy or something recently? Yeah, I've started in the last couple of years... There's all there's challenges being an adventurer is how do you pay the bills? Yeah. Uh, and sadly writing books doesn't do doesn't really pay the bills. So I've started making films, which I love. I love making films on my journeys, and a really nice spin off for me from that has been that brands have started asking me to make films oh, of my right. adventures on behalf of them. So that's uh, some sort of paid work that I've started doing and it means I get to do some fun stuff and make films so yeah I'm yeah. enjoying that yeah wonderful um, so for the people listening can you just give some um, so tell us uh, your website uh, my website what the, I, I've spent far too much time making myself quite visible on the internet so if you google my name Alistair Humphreys you'll yeah. find my website yeah, alistairhumphreys.com Alistair and then I'm on Twitter Instagram Facebook YouTube um and fairly active on all of those. If you just search my name, you'll find me. Okay, excellent. I will uh, include that stuff in the show notes as well. So I really want to thank you. It's great to see you again after all these years. Yes, yeah. Uh, and thank you for the party. It was a great party. <laughs> yeah. So good, good luck with everything, and and I I hope that life continues to bring you to fulfill all of your dreams, and uh, that you continue doing amazing things because you're really inspiring and. I think you. A lot of people can learn from your adventure, and and I know this is still just the beginning. You know, you're in your your thirties. You still have decades of of adventure in you. So, good luck with your journey, Alistair. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Okay, just stay on the line one second, everybody. Thank you sure. for listening uh, to my Run Your Life podcast, uh, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.